Hi, I'm Lisa. Welcome to Pillontology, the pod about the wild and wonderful world of prescription pill medication. Every epi, I'll feature a pill and talk to a friend, or maybe not a friend, about their experience on that pill. Also a disclaimer, I'm not a doctor or a pharmacist, although sometimes I like to pretend that I am. Hope you enjoy. Hey, Pillontology, we out here in the wilderness with Katie Garb. <laughs> We're doing Sertraline again, Zoloft, Pfizer's favorite pharmaceutical. Is uh, it? It is, yeah. Pfizer created it in 1990, and it is their top seller. It's also the most commonly prescribed antidepressant in the U.S., and unfortunately, right now, there's a shortage Due to COVID, prescriptions have gone up and not all pharmacies have enough Zoloft for everybody. Whoa. Breaking news. Breaking news. You heard it here on Pillontology <laughs> first. So Zoloft, as we all know, is an SSRI and it's used to treat major depressive disorder, anxiety, uh, social anxiety, premenstrual dysmorphic disorder, better known as PMS. And yeah, it's very commonly prescribed. If you don't have it, go get some. And here we have Katie Garber, who I met when I was a first-year intern at Social Twerk School, not knowing what I was getting myself into. And she was like a guardian angel, an (laughs) older girl who had her shit together. And here we are now talking pills. So, Katie, um, I wanted to ask you, when you first started any sort of antidepressant and what that was for? Well, I just want to say thanks to all the listeners and the supporters. I'm a big fan of paleontology. I'm excited to join the ranks of the distinguished guests on the show. Um, I first started... (laughs) I actually first started taking an SSRI when I was 11 years old. Um, It was Prozac. I had a diagnosis of anorexia nervosa. I had been restricting my eating from um, when I was about 10. Um, And it started for me with puberty and I hit puberty really early. I was nine when I got my period for the first time. And that was before anybody in school or my family had explained it to me. And I thought that I was dying. I thought I had cancer. And I realized at a certain point, if I didn't eat any fat, I wouldn't get my period. And so it actually... Smart. That's very smart. Well, it was sort of a trial and error type of thing. Um, And then I think I did read, read an article about it or something. You know, I'm only five foot two, but I've been that way, like, since I was young. So there was aspects of feeling really uncomfortable as a white woman who was larger than everybody else physically. And it just, and my body was doing things that felt totally weird and unusual and I didn't see happening to anybody else. So I did have this sort of obsession over, I want to control my body, but it wasn't this sort of classic anorexia, bulimia, where you're like, I feel fat. You know, I felt large, 
you were hyper tuned in to all the changes going on in your body. Right. And so I think like combined with, you know, the developmental stress of being that age and like some of the other stuff that was happening with my family, like my external family, um, I be I became hyper focused and then obsessed with my size. And eating was the obvious way. I was I played a lot of soccer when I was that like a little kid. So I was always active, always moving. I loved being outside. Um, and that obviously hadn't slowed any of this down or changed any of it. So I, I sort of looked to eating and um, became very obsessed with, like, I could tell you how many calories are, like, in an apple or in that mm. spoonful of yogurt. And I was just super restricted on what I ate. And then as I became treated for my anorexia, I, like, learned more about anorexia and so I had this period where I was being treated, but I was actually losing weight and kind of going backwards in it hmm. because I was getting, I felt like my obsession was getting smarter. So I felt like I took this backwards dip into, it sort of, in, in, get, in seeking treatment, what ultimately happened was my disease got worse at first. Interesting, because you paid attention to it or you... I was learning I was soaking everything up yeah so like I was like oh I didn't know I shouldn't be eating a bagel I'm gonna substitute it with this yeah. you know and like and certainly the feature of anorexia that does resonate is that I couldn't stop it like I literally couldn't intake more calories without physical pain being emotionally distraught and in fact, when I did finally uptake my calories, I would do it over long periods of time. So it would take three hours to eat a dinner of like oh, wow. 250, 500 calories. So do you remember when the Prozac kicked in? Like, it's so funny. I do, like almost to the moment. And I remember going, I was at this like weekend family camp getaway that was like sponsored through my school. My parents were with me, my sister. There was like some other of my classmates there. And I remember sitting at a table in, like, a very public setting, which would have normally caused me a lot of anxiety to be eating in front of other people. And it was a buffet, which would have caused me a lot of anxiety because I couldn't, like, measure and calculate and know exactly what I was intaking. But I was like, I want some granola, I want some yogurt, and I want some eggs. And I remember just putting them on my plate and, like, starting to eat and being so hungry. And the hunger was an experience I hadn't felt for so huh. long. You think you conditioned yourself out of it? Definitely. And that the Prozac just put you more in touch with... I think what the Prozac did was it, like, switched off the obsession or the compulsion or the, the, the OCD aspect of the disordered eating that allowed me to, like, then click in to what I, what I actually needed. Like, like to a, a brain function... Like, I think that's what the, the serotonin does, right? Is it, like, helps you feel hunger and it helps you kind of attune to your natural, like, your body's needs. And I was in such a deficit that once it finally piled up and it was like, oh, there's enough serotonin there. You became hungry. I became hungry, yeah. And how long were you on the Prozac? I was on the Prozac probably for under a year. Um, so then I started to gain weight. And I continued in therapy and you know, continue in these doctor's appointments until I kind of, like, you know, graduated or whatever, like, around 100 pounds. And then I was still on the Prozac, and then I remember feeling very manic. Like, um, no inhibition. Um, 
I think it was probably when I hit a more normal weight. Mm -hmm. And I, I think my, again, my assessment of that, like for myself, is that I'd been out of the compulsive behavior long enough that it was no, like, that it was sort of trained out of me, kind of like CBT style. Um, Cognitive behavioral therapy. For those who don't know. Um, if you don't know, you should get knowing. I began to feel manic, like I'd go to sleepovers with friends and I would just be up the whole night. And I'd be eating nonstop, and I'd be eating anything, even if I wasn't feeling hungry. Mm -hmm. So I went from feeling like I'm in touch with my hunger to like I'm never hungry, but I'm constantly eating. You oscillate it to the other side, right? Yeah. Right. And it took me a while because also when you're that age, like I would tell my parents things like I don't think I need to be on this anymore, and they'd be like, Yeah, you do need to be on this. Like we know what's best. You don't know what's going on, and I'd be like, No, I really don't. But because it was like combined with all this other shithead stuff I was doing. I think I was on it longer than I needed to be. And when I finally went off it, I remember feeling a sense of relief. I lost a little bit of weight, which was like, probably, hmm. which was okay, I think. I could sleep better. It just, I felt like I was finally in touch with my rhythms a little bit more. And I was off anything basically for the rest of high school. Can you tell me about the catalyst for getting back on a drug? Yeah. So I, I can I was often on in therapy in high school and also like body therapy. So I wasn't doing prescription drugs, but I was taking like I was doing like acupuncture. I went to high school in Switzerland, and I would take the train down to the town of Lucerne to get this like body work done by this like Reiki acupuncture master. And I really felt that helped my anxiety a lot because I was noticing that I was having anxiety. I was also in this very, like, this mindset of, like, drugs are bad. Like, all drugs. Like, mm -hmm. I didn't want to drink. Well, no, I guess I was drinking by then. But I didn't want to smoke weed. I didn't want to do coke. I didn't want to, like, any substance. Alter your brain chemistry. I didn't want to alter my brain chemistry. I felt like brain chemistry is pure. Mm -hmm. Like, I had this sort of weird kind of obsession I feel with that. that now despite altering my brain chemistry but I I can understand interesting that. Yeah. so so I guess it's something that other people feel too it's also interesting that they had like a Reiki acupuncture person in Switzerland I feel like that was pre the wave here in the U.S. yeah it would have been like 2003 2002 that's pretty cool yeah and that helped a lot, you said. It helped a lot. Like, it was very centering. I had some very rocky relationships with different people in my life, especially authority figures. And I would go to these sessions and just felt, like, very centered. Mm. I think it's also because I'm a Scorpio sun sign. Mm. And we're very intense, and our bodies, like, hold a lot. So I think doing body move, like, slow body movement, like yoga or these sort of, like, Reiki things is, like... But I would feel very anxious, especially at night. Like, I couldn't sleep without a light on often. Um, I would get kind of hyper-obsessed with relationships, feeling like... Like, just perseverating on stuff. Like, problems needed to be solved. Problems that needed to be solved. Right, exactly. And, um, and I would have these, like emotional outbursts at times which were cathartic but also inappropriate yes inappropriate it's the right word um so I feel like in hindsight my mood was somewhat dysregulated but I don't know how much of that is 
And I feel like this is something that is like a theme on paleontology. It's a theme with anybody who's taken these meds when they were so young. It's like, how much do I know that that's my chemist, my brain chemistry? Or how much is that just like, that's what it's like to be 17? Right. You know? Right. Hard to know. And I, I think the question that I've get, gotten to know as I've gotten even like more removed from it, as I'm in my, you know, mid-30s now, is why does it matter? Why is that question important? Like, why does it keep posing itself? Because I can't answer it, obviously. No one will ever know. And what's, like, what, what meaning does that question hold for me? And I don't know. I think there's some aspects of control, but... But to answer your question about the next time I went on a pill was actually... It wasn't until 2010, and I was having, like, massive chronic um, OBGYN issues. And I kept oscillating between basically having a yeast infection and BV, which is short for bacterial vaginosis, which essentially is a symptom of the pH balance in my lady part. And I was uncomfortable, like, all of the time. Was it brought on by sex? So it turns out that it was probably actually brought on by birth control. Hmm. That about 15 to 25, I don't know if I'm right on the statistics, a percent of women who take a tricyclic birth control, such as, what's the, like, classic? Um, Orthotricycline Low. Brought to you by Orthotricycline Low. (laughs) So... There's a, the progestin in it, which is part of the hormone, not the estrogen. It's like the other hormone. Um, a lot of women are actually have a sensitivity or even an allergy to hmm. when it's synthetic. Because I was concerned when I got pregnant. I was like, well, your body produces a lot more progestin. What's going to happen down there? And my OBGYN was like, it should be fine. Even people who have this sensitivity, when it's like natural, they don't have it. And they're, lo and behold, there was no problems during pregnancy. So there's something about this synthetic progestin that caused this agonismus and vulvodynia. It's basically like eczema in your vagina. Another thing that happened was I was getting these aura migraines on the tricycline. Hmm. So the doctor I was seeing at the time said, well, you should get off of that because um, that means you're in like some higher risk category for having a stroke or something while you're on this. Hmm. So get off of that and I'm going to give you this more old school birth control pill that's progestin the mini Um, pill progestin only it's progestin only which unbeknownst to me was like making matters worse downstairs um and it basically didn't get a period or like i hardly ever did or it was just spotting but squidding as we like to call it (sighs) on pillontology oh i haven't i haven't listened to that episode yet it's not an episode it's an episode now so um, it was bad enough for a long enough time that you decided to go to a specialist. Here I finally was referred to a specialist when I'd moved back here because I went to see my OBGYN like every four to six weeks when I was in Rochester. It was constant. Shout out to my upstate New York friends who like probably knew, knew me as Katie's the vagina, vagina. girl. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I was went to see one down here. I was referred to the specialist. And she said, I'm going to prescribe you Effexor, which is Cymbalta, right? We said it was Cymbalta. Effexor is an, I don't think it's Cymbalta. Okay. But it's, it's an antidepressant, which is interesting that they're prescribing it for a vaginal condition. It was originally, if I remember correctly, it was originally developed as an antidepressant. And then as antidepressants 
and SSRIs became more prevalent, um, there started to be clinical trials using it for pain relief, and they found that in um, nerve pain, like, like fibromyalgia. fibromyalgia or other sort of like, you know, neuralgia, other neuralgies, <laughs> neuralgias, um, this was helpful. So the specialist I was seeing, she had conducted clinical trials around this and, you know, it was her area of specialty. She put me on it along with some other topical pills and some like vaginal suppositories. And within like six to 12 weeks, like things were calm downtown. Now, remember, it's the antidepressant. So I was feeling okay. Mm-hmm. Whereas before, I had been so wrapped up in... I feel like if anyone listening to pillontology, male, female, intersex, has ever had a problem with their, like, intimate parts, it's really hard on you. Like, whether or not you're sexually active, you just feel like shit. Yeah, I'm sure. So there was some mental health stuff happening with me that was sort of masked by this physical self, which was the stuff which was so present. And so I think going on the effects or not only did it like relieve all of the nerve happenings that needed to be relieved downstairs, upstairs, it was like taking the edge off of how stressed out I was and how bad I was feeling. But I had some crazy side effects. Um, I had a little bit of, like, muscle twitching, which was annoying, but the biggest thing was that I felt, like, I didn't feel like I was myself. Mm-hmm. Like, I'd be sitting in a room, and I'd know I was there, obviously, but I'd know I'd be talking to you or whomever, but I felt kind of, like, disassociated, like, out of it. Interesting. Was this something you noticed while you were on the pill or afterwards? After it was the- while I was on the pill, and I'd been on it long enough that, like, the, um, the symptoms that I had been prescribed it for were calm enough so I could actually start kind of, like, being a little bit more present, I guess, mentally. But you weren't present. But I couldn't be. Right. Yeah. As much as you try. How long did you try? Well, probably, like, two years. Oh, wow. Because. That's a long time Because it took, it took probably about six months for the symptoms to, like, completely resolve. Maybe maybe longer until I was like, okay, I'm, no, wait, I'm getting it wrong. So, a I little s- memory, a little, hey, r- 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 I had not, remember my idea about, like, my mind being pure and, like, brain chemistry yeah. being pure? So, my specialist and I worked together with the topical stuff and the, like, suppository things that were compounded and, like, homeopathic. We worked with that for several months before I decided to go on the effects war because I was so anti-pills. Um, it was anti-drugs. like a last resort. Right. So we tried a lot of other things first. So I probably actually didn't go on the effects war until sometime in 2011. So how did you know it was the pill that was causing your dissociation and not just, you know... It was pretty... That's a good question. I think because I just felt so weird. For so long. For, for so two years. It wasn't totally two years. So I think I probably had the side effects at first, but I was like... You didn't well, care because you felt better? I felt better, right? My symptoms were resolving. And also, I actually used to... I was, at the time, was my boyfriend, but now my husband, Adam. Hi, Adam. You're probably not Shout ever going to listen to this. baby daddy. <laughs> um, but... Adam, I, you better listen to this. <laughs> 
But I used to cry before I would take the pill every night. The Fexor. Like, oh. I was like, I do not want to take this. And he would, like, have to sit there with me and, like, literally hold my hand and be like, babe, it's just, like, this thing you have to do for your body. You gotta do it. And I had told him exactly what to do, so he knew what script to follow to make me feel better. Get yourself a robot. You <laughs> <laughs> sincere. Um, but it was like, it was so emotional for me to have to take the pill. Like, and I'm saying the pill meaning the effector. Effector, yeah. yeah. I, I, ever since I got the diagnosis, I've never been on birth control pills. Like, again, my doctor... My specialist is like, you really shouldn't ever do it, and you should also should never use over-the-counter monostat, because that irritates the, that problem area, too. So I probably took it for about a year, and it probably took about half that long to really feel like the symptoms were calm enough, and then I felt scared to go off it, even though I had these unpleasant side effects, because I was like, I don't want to go backwards. I don't want to go off this. Right. And Effexor... And disassociation felt better than having yeah. vaginismus or... Then, right, yeah, than feeling like constant issues. pain. I also felt like with Effexor, it's like kind of a hardcore drug and that like I really had to taper up and I had to taper down for a while to get off of it. So in some ways I was like having like a dopamine rush, right? That means... Like I Maybe. I mean, it affects yeah. everybody differently. Like, dopamine rush true. could mean that you're very keyed into a situation and, like, feel very alert, not disassociated. So. And I felt, and I know, like, listening to some other paleontology episodes, I'm not alone, but it felt sort of strange to be prescribed this mood-altering medication for a physical symptom. I mean, they're very connected. Western medicine likes to disconnect brain and body, but... It's all one. Your brain sends signals to your body, so... It's very true. I mean, shout out to IBS sufferers out there, but a lot are prescribed antidepressants. Hmm. Yeah. Nothing's worked for me, so... (laughs) There's a $100 reward for whoever can can fix this butthole. Um, So, let's fast forward to... You got off the effectsor, and then... Around 2012 is when you next started a new antidepressant. Well, that's when I got off of it. And then it actually I was off of anything for a year. And it's very impressive, Katie. I really quickly want to give accolade to people who can get off antidepressants or, like, try out new things. It's very difficult when you get adjusted to a state of being to want to change. And, I mean, personally speaking, I'm very afraid of change, and I think it's admirable how you're willing to experiment in both directions, both getting on something and getting off of something. Um, yeah. I, I appreciate that. I think I want, I don't want that to be misconstrued as you should get off of things, or you should get on things. You don't know? get like, it misconstrued. Don't misconstrue it, listeners. Because I think that when I was off of it, people would be like, oh, congratulations for getting off. And that always felt a little bit weird. Like, the goal was to get back to this, like, neurosyntonic purity, which is, like, that's a fucking crapshoot from what I was, my genetics. Yeah. Like, just like I would say, oh, I don't want to exercise anymore because the way my body is meant to be. I don't need. I don't need to do anything. Or I don't need to eat. Yeah, like, it just, it's... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's sort of bizarre to me, and I feel like there's some undercurrent 
culturally that like people who are getting on getting getting by air quotes without antidepressants are like stronger seen as stronger and I think that's bullshit but I think it's cool yes don't get it misconstrued as me giving props to people for getting off of things but I will say I think it's cool that you're willing to experiment with your brain states like you're willing to go on something you're willing to go off of something you're willing to experiment well and I I felt like I had no other choice at the time because I felt so unlike myself in any of these moments I feel like when I decided to make a change to go off, it was because the side effects were unbearable. And when I made the decision to go on these different things, it was because the physical effects of of continuing on were unbearable. And I had a really strong support network both times. Like with the Prozac, it was my parents and my... You know my my medical team with the with the low weight and the eat disordered eating and with the effects or it was like with my boyfriend and friends like I feel like it's the more if I hadn't been able to talk to people about this is really hard for me and I'm worried about it then people wouldn't have been able to show up and give me the support I needed right. to make those changes. Um, but yeah, I think I appreciate that. Thank you. So let's. Let's get moving. I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. This I, is your six-hour episode <laughs> of Katie Garber and Philanthology. I So, yeah, so you, 2012, you were off of anything. I got off of it when we, and I don't know if you remember this, when we had first met, but we, um, I was getting off of the, the medication while, like, you know, starting school, the grad program and at the internship, and I was like, oh, my God, I'm just so mad. Like, emotions suddenly started to flood me in a way that I had been missing them. And in many ways, I told you, I'm Scorpio, so, like, that feels really good, even though the dysregulation is, like, not always helpful. But I like that feeling again of, like, I can feel really intense sadness or anger or happy or this sort of, like... Yeah, you know, it's fun. Yeah, and it feels real to me. Mm-hmm. So, um... It wasn't until the fall of 2013, so I'd been in school for a year, I'd been off of stuff for probably about 10 or 11 months, and I had a massive panic attack. I'd been having some panic attacks, um, but I felt like, oh, I can live with this, or it's not that bad, or um, I'll just exercise a little more and it'll go away, you know, again, this sort of like mythology around how to runner's high or whatever, yeah. and um, I had a massive panic attack driving on 95 on the way to University of Maryland. And it w- I thought I was having um, a stroke. I literally thought I was stroking out. And I called 911 and I couldn't even accurately tell them where I was. And I was like, oh, well, I'm definitely stroking out if I'd have, like, aphasia. And um, by the time the paramedics got there, I was still alert and oriented, sort of. Um, and I remember one of the EMTs telling me, he was like, look, lady, like, because I was sort of, like, blah blahing, you know, sometimes when I was having panic, like, just pressured speech would come out, mm-hmm. and I was explaining about my, um, I'm going to school, I'm going to be a social worker, I want to help people, and he was like, you know, you can't help anybody if you are like this basically. I mean, kind of like the old adage, like, Very you can't rude. help yourself first. Very rude. It was rude, but it was good to hear. It was this, like, you know, racist white guy who was, like, coming to my aid and was like, get your act together, lady. Kind of, I mean, he meant it, he meant it kindly. Right. But, um, 
He served you up a red pill. And that's what I needed, you know. And I called my mom, who came and met me at a nearby Panera. And I was like, I can't drive. I'm terrified of driving now. Brought to you by Panera. (laughs) And um, stayed at Panera for several hours. And then decided I would timidly drive home along the back. I couldn't get back on 95. And then I basically lived my life around not driving. I missed friends' weddings. Um, I took the train back and forth to school. I didn't go places that I couldn't get to. Um, This is what a lot of people who have anxiety do. They avoid the situations that they think could bring on the anxiety. And that doesn't do anything besides make the anxiety worse because it builds it up in your head. Well, and it confirms your sort of phobic response, right? right. Of like, oh, You're I'm feeling sort good. of functioning if I'm not driving. Um, but I knew that that was wake-up call. I was like, I can't not drive. I don't love, I've never loved to drive, and I'd much rather take the train or the bus, but like, I want to be able to do it if I have to. So I started doing therapy, and I thought just therapy would help for a while. And then finally, therapist was like, why not try something? And that's where we sort of dove into a little bit more about my beliefs around the, like, pure neuro landscape of my brain and talked a little bit about that and the meaning it held for me and these questions, like I said earlier, you know, grappling with, well, what does it mean if it's my my neurocognition or if it's amplified by something I'm taking a mood altering substance. What does that mean right. for me? And I got to the conclusion that it doesn't mean that I'm a failure. It doesn't mean that I'm a loser or an idiot or or that it will it have has. negative side effects. Right. So yeah. that's when I got on um, Lexapro because I had ex- I'd expressed that I'd been on Effexor and Prozac and felt like Prozac I felt manic and Effexor I felt like cloudy and disassociative and so I started on Lexapro. Um, Lexapro is escitalopram. Correct. Yes. And that was the one I was on for a while. Um, I was still having some panic attacks, but I would take, um, but they were much more, they were more situational. Um, For example? For example, like when I would get in an airplane, I I get scared of flying. Um, I'm worried that the plane's going to fall out of the sky or there'll be a hijacking or something like that. Um, So... um, so I would take um, a clonopin. Mm-hmm. So it didn't totally, you know, stop everything, but it made it much more manageable, and, like, I could manage it with the clonopin. You could drive. I could drive again, yes. And So we're getting there. We're getting to the right pill. We're getting there. It's a journey. It is a journey. Pillontology listeners, it's a journey. Um, and then the big kick in the pants was that I wanted to try to get pregnant. And... Um, Lexapro had the unfortunate side effect of zero libido, which for most people you have to have sex to get pregnant, although not everybody. And then um, also there's some studies that show that it can have a negative impact on the fetal formation. So I was like, oh, well, I'll get off of everything. And then my doctor was like, well, untreated panic and anxiety disorder is actually equally as scientifically proven to have negative impact on fetal development and neonatal stuff. Um, Plus, you're at massive risk for postpartum depression. Mm -hmm. So that's when I decided to try Zoloft. And I had such a good relationship with my um, primary at the time, well, I still do, 
that I was that I felt like. Do we want a shout out? Yeah, one medical Casey O'Brien. Casey O'Brien, MD, PA, PA. Mm-hmm. Also, shout out to to K Dubs, my friend Kristen, who's also a PA. I highly recommend. Pivot. We're pivoting. <laughs> I highly but recommend NPs and 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 PAs over MDs. Sorry, Gary. Gary, we're giving you a heartfelt cheers. Oh, <laughs> we love you. Um, we would prefer you over most people. <laughs> <laughs> so I just think that sometimes people without um, an MD can see can spend more time with you and see things a little bit more clearly because they're not as wrapped up in the research part of things. That's just my bias that I carry around. Um, yeah, so Casey and I would talk, and she'd be like, Katie, you know this. Come on. You have to be on something. And I'd be like, you're right. I do, Casey, and I love you. How old is Casey? She's probably my age or a little younger or older. I just talked to her today because I'm having some food pain. She told me to wear a more supportive bra. You can just call her? On one medical? Wow. The rich people's solution to medical care. How much is it per year? $199. That's all? $199 per, per year? Mm-hmm. But then, I mean, you have to pay, like, co-pays and stuff, but... But co-pays are, like, 20 The co-pays is, like, I paid that anyway. Yeah. yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. that's kind of nice. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I'll check it out. Check it. So, so, Katie, the culmination of the story is that you switched from Lexapro to Zoloft because there have been more studies showing that Zoloft is not is harmful to neonatal development. And it's safe for breastfeeding, which was always a goal I had, was to breastfeed, which I did accomplish. And you went on how much? 50 milligrams? I think I started around 50 or 75. I remember being shocked at first because on Lexapro I was on like maybe... And maybe but it, 20. the dosages are way the different. The dosages are way different. So I remember getting, I had to get kind of taper down off of Lexapro and then taper on. And I remember reducing some of the side effects um, on Lexapro, like feeling less foggy. And on, on Zoloft, feeling like those side effects never came back. I do have side effects on the Zoloft. And I'm also on the highest dosage. But since I've been on this dosage, which was October 2017... I've never had a full-blown panic attack now. Oh, my gosh. Cheers three to years. That. Yeah. So when I finally got on this dosage, I can remember the last panic attack I had, which was um, as I was ramping up to this full one. Because also when you're pregnant, you can't take a clonopin. I mean, I guess you could. You could do anything when you're pregnant, but it's not recommended. So you had a panic attack while you were pregnant? Yeah, I didn't even know. That was the last one I had. It was the very beginning and didn't even know I was pregnant yet. Oh, okay. Um, and it had been after a long night of drinking, so hashtag didn't know. Hashtag my daughter's a genius. She is. She's very Thank cute. God I drank that, that first She's got month. a lovely attention span. She really, really does. It's like way longer than mine. It's longer than most people's now, thanks to technology. Mm-hmm. So, do you plan on staying on this dose? Like, for the foreseeable future? You know, I do for two reasons. One is because I feel like the side effects that happen are I have some lapses of memory, as you sort of noticed during this episode. Maybe you'll edit that out. I don't know. Um, and I can't remember, like, names or times or some sort of, like, specific stuff. Luckily, I don't have a job or a lifestyle where that's super important to me. So I'm like, oh, okay. 
And then number two, because... Um, you think that's due to the drug? Yes, it's definitely due to the... I think it's am, it's been amplified, like, when I was a new mom or when I was breastfeeding. Like, you had definitely other got worse. But now that some other things have subsided, I still feel that way. Hmm. Like, Adam will tell me, like... I'll be like, oh, da-da-da-da, and I'm, like, bringing something up to him. He's like, Katie, we just talked about this yesterday. Um... It, Which yeah, is, I mean, we had plans. Had to remind you. You had to. You you didn't even know you were reminding me, and you yeah. did. Or maybe did you know you were reminding me? Do I forget I things? Know. I don't know. You don't. I mean, you don't strike me as somebody who has severe dementia. Well, that's the other. That brings me to reason number two. Is I want to stay on this. Is that my dad and one of my aunts both have cognitive issues. My dad has um, primary progressive aphasia, and my aunt has really severe Alzheimer's. And what I've read is that untreated, you know, kind of left rampant anxiety, panic, and depression can be a contributing factor, can act almost like as a TBI, as a traumatic brain injury, and can be a contributing factor towards if you're already genetically predisposed to some of that stuff. Makes sense. To be getting it. You think it's like your brain is basically inflamed all the time when you're anxious. So... It's interesting that this med is making you forget. Exactly. Yeah. So, I, I'm i not sure the long-term answer, but I do feel like I have no plans to get off. Um, partially because I do hope to grow my family, and I'd like to continue to protect myself against postpartum depression. I am in therapy. I do exercise. And shout out to therapy. Um, Katie's and I, living her best life. I feel like taking the pill is part of just, like, making sure that I'm healthy and I'm healthy for my kids, mm-hmm. you know? So, and I will plug intergenerational living. Katie. Katie is living in a household with her parents, her baby daddy, <laughs> slash husband, and her kid. And they're all living in one house in the lovely Tacoma Park neighborhood of Maryland. The wilderness. And I think it's a really cool way of living that's not really embraced in the West. I think it's being embraced now more in COVID when parents are realizing, like parents, especially with younger kids, are realizing like how much we rely on formal systems to help us raise our kids, like whether that's daycare or school or a nanny or whatever um with social distancing I feel like yeah thrown in the and with people losing their jobs you have to rely on informal you can't afford it support systems yeah Um, and I think it is done in more like in cultures that aren't like yeah like western that aren't western and and in the U.S. cultures that aren't rich like right exactly it's it's seen as something that like at least I feel like in white culture it's like Ooh, you had to move back in with your parents. Yeah. Like, ooh, is everything okay? You know, you're poor. You're poor, right? Yeah. Um. So my last question, I always ask this, is: Do you recommend Zoloft? Yes. Vitamin Z. Get yourself a dose. There you have it. <laughs> Everybody's on Zoloft, like I said last time. <laughs> and, and the time before that. <laughs> um. Go to one medical. To get your script, find yourself a nice PA or Dr. Gary. 